Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are at this uh, story of the scouts of the land of Israel, yeah? It's a, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of traditional interpretation of the story. There are a lot of questions about the story, and this is a doublet. This is a doubled story. We see the other version of it, you know, the reference to it in Deuteronomy. Probably two traditions, variant traditions about the same narrative. You know, this is common. Um, If you look at Torah, it's very common. Numbers contains a lot of stories that are actually told elsewhere. Uh, And there's enough variation between them that we understand these to be probably from two different traditions about scouting stories. Um, these are not the only scouting stories within the canon. So there, there are other places we see stories of scoutage. Um, this one has implications that are far-reaching, right? It's not just a scouting mission. Joshua's going to send scouts. You know, scouting is normative. We'll talk about why, how, what's going on. Um, this story takes on mythic significance for us. So let's begin. I'm going to try to get through, I'd like us to get through a good chunk of text. You know, normally I stop and we don't make it past the third sentence. Um, but I, I'd like to, I'd like to kind of hear some of the, hear the narrative and then we'll start pulling apart the, the larger issues, the bigger questions, because it's a lot of territory to cover. All right, so somebody want to begin at chapter 13. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to scout the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelite people. Send one man from each of their ancestral tribes, each one a chieftain among them. So Moses, by the Lord's command, sent them out from the wilderness of Paran, all the men being leaders of the Israelites. And these were their names. We want all their names? Let's go to verse 16. 16. We 16. Uh, those were the names uh, of the men whom Moses sent to scout the land. But Moses changed the name of Hosea, son of Nun, to Yeshua. When Moses sent them to scout the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev and on into the hill country and see what kind of country it is. Are the people who dwell in it strong or weak, few or many? Is the country in which they dwell good or bad? Are the towns they live in open or fortified? Is the soil rich or poor? Is it wooded or not? And take pains to bring back some of the fruit of the land. Now it happened to be the season of the first ripe grapes. Go on. They went up and scouted the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehov. Uh, at Lebohamat, they went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, where lived uh, Ahiman, Sheshai, and Tamai, the Anakites. Now, Hebron was founded seven years before Zoan of Egypt. They reached the Wadi Eshkol, and there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes. It had to be borne on a carrying frame by two of them, and some of the pomegranates and figs. That place uh, was named the Wadi Eshkol, because of the cluster that the Israelites cut down there. Go on. At the end of 40 days, they returned from scouting the land. They went straight to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran, and they made their report to them and to the whole community as they showed them the fruit of the land. This is what they told him. We came to the land you sent us to. It does indeed flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who inhabit the country are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the Anakites there. Uh, Amalekites dwell in the Negev region. Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites inhabit the hill country. Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Caleb hushed the people before Moses and said, Let us by all means go up, and we shall gain possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We cannot attack that people, for it's stronger than we. Thus they spread calumnies among the Israelites about the land they had scouted, saying, The country that we traveled and scouted is one that devours its settlers. All the people that we saw in it are men of great size. 
We saw the Nephilim there. The Anakites are part of the Nephilim. And we looked like grasshoppers to ourselves. And so we must have looked to them. Okay, so we're just going to read the first verse of 14 so that we see the impact, right? The whole community broke into loud cries and the people wept all that night. All right, so this is the result of, of the report that Bert just, just read. All right. So God speaks to Moshe and says, Shlach lecha anashim. Already the rabbis have an issue, right? What should it say? It should say, Shlach. It should say just send. So what, what's the problem? It says send yourself. Send for yourself. Send to yourself. Send of those that are yours, right? You know, it's this doubling, the same that we get with Avraham and Lech Lecha, right? It should have just said Lech, but we get Lech Lecha, and there's lots of interpretation about what that might mean. Go to yourself, go inward, find your true self, like the, all these lovely interpretations, which don't work quite as well when you're talking about scouts. Shlach Lecha, you don't send scouts to your deepest self, right? So it's no, not. No. Oh, Sarah says, yeah. Maybe because it's a mission that is unknown and could be dangerous, as they find, uh, then it really requires bravery and going into yourself. Okay, so you're going to have to scout out the parts of yourself that are able to do this, that are courageous and are brave enough to do this. Lovely. Um. The rabbis, and we're gonna we're gonna go there at the end. We're gonna go to talking about kind of you know what what does the tradition do with this? Where do, where do we take it ultimately? Um, Can I ask Rabbi how, how much time has elapsed here from the time that the Israelites left Egypt? We're in the second year. So a year has elapsed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Um, and by the way, we, we only get a report of the first two and then approaching the, the promised land. We were missing 38 years. That's how I know that. <laughs> um, all right. So, shlach lecha anashim. So, send folks anashim, men. So, what does this mean, anashim? This is sometimes seen, but what, what can it mean? Um, couldn't it could mean important brave right people we see a reference to it in genesis and in judges that give us that flavor of important people like brave people are anashim um, but shlach lecha send for yourself meaning it's not for god this is god doesn't need this god knows about the promised land god knows they're going to take the promised land because it was god who promised it, right? Like, so they, this is not for, God doesn't need to know anything. So, shlach lecha anashim. It was your idea, you people, right, to send scouts. That's, that's the tradition we have. Um, and so, God is saying then, send for yourselves scouts if that's going to make you feel better. Right? That's one rabbinic interpretation. Is they're sending them for themselves. That they doubted God? That, they, that they're still not sure they can do this even though they've been promised. Even though God has said, I will fight for you. Even though they've seen the ten plagues. Even though they walked through two standing walls of water. Right? Still, they feel like they need to scout. Okay, so send for yourselves. God says, all right. So Moses, right? Moses is listening to this, and, and scouts are going to go out. But they're not just people. They are one man from each of their ancestral tribes. So how many are we going to get? Twelve. Twelve. Each one a chieftain among them. What does this tell us about the scouting mission? It's important Hi, David. people. Hmm? Important people are being sent. What does that tell us about the mission? Important, important people are sent. Heads of the tribes are sent. Mickey? They, they want to look out the lay of the land, uh, what, uh, encompassing what's going to happen when they go into the land. 
what it's all about to give the honest answer, truthful answer. Okay. They were they're 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 key influencers. They're what? They're key influencers. They have credibility. They have credibility. They are key influencers. Right? Chieftains are people that people listen to. They have credibility. So yes, they're gonna they're gonna go scout and come back with hopefully an honest report of what they see. The fact that it's not schleppers that are sent, right, tells us that it is the mission itself is something about the report they bring back is going to be authoritative. People are going to listen to them. That already, right here, that line right there already tells us something for the commentators about the consequences, about why the consequences are so severe because of this. It also tells us this is not a military scouting expedition. If it were a military scouting expedition, who would have been sent? The Schleppers. Or the CIA. The soldiers. Generals, maybe. Probably not. You don't risk a general. Right? You know. And also, you pick people. If it's a military scouting expedition, you send people who are experts. You send the military scouting expert people. The cartographers, perhaps. I, you know, like you send out people who know what they're doing. And who would they report to? If it were a military expedition, who would they be reporting to? Military leaders. Military leaders. All right. And who would know about the expedition if it were a military CIA operation? Nobody. Just the military. <laughs> Reuben. Nobody. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. Right. Or only secret. people. It, it would have been secret. It would have been only military people. Right. It wouldn't. It would have been a very covert operation and very that information would have been protected so clearly this is not about a military scouting expedition margo i just wondered um you know i'm kind of new to torah study but i sort of figured out myself that it may have been a year ago when i started because i didn't remember this but it may have been now another type of sending out of uh, scout scoutage so I, my question is were the scouts that they sent out and the other uh, part like in Deuteronomy uh, of similar um, I mean were they the same type of people, emissaries as these people that they're sending yeah it seems so, it seems like both traditions are a similar a similar kind of expedition um, and Mazel Tov on your anniversary <laughs> how wonderful wonderful sure. that you've been coming Margo for a year, we love that um, may we all be blessed with another year um, of, of Torah study. All right, so, so Moses, he, and here it's God's command. It's very clear that there's a variant tradition where it's not God commanding, right? It's, it's really the people's initiative. Um, so sent them out from the wilderness of Paran. All of the men, we get told again, are leaders of the Israelites, right? We get their names um, and what tribe they're from, uh, and we get that Moshe changes the name of Hoshea ben Nun to Yehoshua. So what is added? Yeah. The Yud. So now there's a part of his name that's Yud Hey. What do we know that that refers to? God. Yud Hey Vav Hey. Thank you, Sarah. God's name, God's proper name. It is then a. It is a. It is a Israelite name because the Israelite name for God is Yud Hey Vav Hey. Meaning, and when do we get them really exposed to this idea of yud vav In the desert, at Sinai, with Moshe. Moshe is the one, remember, who experiences God as yud vav in the desert, yes? In Egypt, what, what, what do they know God as in Egypt? So for the most... Common one, the most popular one is Pharaoh, or Ra, right? Isis. Um, but but we get told, I am Yud Hey Vav Hey, who you have known as El Shaddai. Yeah. Yeah. 
I am the same one, but now you're going to know me by this designation, right? So there are some scholars who say, so if if, um, Joshua was from Egypt, he wouldn't have had a name, Yehoshua, because Yudhevavhe would not have been the name of God that you named after in Egypt. So Moshe changes his name now that they are Yahwist. His name is changed to Yehoshua. And so he goes up into the Negev and on into the hill country to see what kind of country it is. What is he supposed to find? What are they supposed to find out? Are the people who dwell in it strong or weak? Few or many? Is the country in which they dwell good or bad? Are the towns they live in open or fortified? Is the soil rich or poor? Is it wooded or not? They're, this is tactical information, but it is more than just military. It's also, um, and take pains to bring back some of the fruit of the land, right? So they're going to bring back a sample, right? A good merchant. If you're selling somebody on something, you got to give them a sample. So... It's also, it's demographic information, it's sociological information, it's agricultural information, some of it is tactical, are we dealing with trees, are we not, right, so, but there's all kinds of information that they're supposed to bring back. It's interesting that it's so specific, it's like a multiple choice test, (laughs) no, as opposed to Moses just going to say, go and report on the land. Go and, go and tell us how it is. Right? I mean, he's very specific as to what he wants to know. Right. Has it been, did the rabbis analyze that as to what, what, what the meaning of each of these questions? Well, sometimes what they analyze is what didn't get answered. That we have very specific questions, uh-huh. and some of them did not get answered, and that is an issue for the rabbis. All right. So, which we're going to talk about. All right. So, they go up and scout the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehov at Lebo Hamat. We have two variant traditions represented, right? We get in verse um, 21 here that they scouted the whole thing, the whole land, right? But at verse 22, we get they went up into the Negev and came to Hebron where lived Achiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the Anakites. And they stop, they stop at Hebron. So there are variant traditions. One that they scouted from the south all the way to the north. Again, the rabbis say it's a good merchant practice. You start in the Negev where there's nothing, right? And then you move north to where it's fertile and green and trees and water and waterfalls. And, right? Those of you who've been to the south, to the Negev, you know, can you remember what it looks like in your head? Yes, sir. And then remember what the north looks like. Remember what the Galilee looks like. Green. Looks like Ireland, if there's been a good rainfall, right? So very different topography, south and north. All right. So two different traditions. They probably, they, they couldn't have gone alone. Wouldn't they go with, I mean, this is not a one-day trip. And these are the, the heads of the clans. Right. Is there an assumption they took people with them? Um, support, carry their food or whatever? Probably, I would imagine. Because when I think of a chieftain, I think kind of an older person and right. 12 guys right. just heading off into the desert. And they're gone a while. They're gone for over a month. Wouldn't have been a good idea on a scouting expedition. I think you want a bunch of Where are we? What verse? 24. Wadi Eshkol. The Wadi Eshkol. You know, I don't know. Meaning the size of the thing? But yeah, it must refer to... It, and it's familiar. I don't know why I'm, not, I'm blanking on... I'm blanking on it. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Eshkol is not, it's not exactly grapes. It, it's... Um, it's uh, what do you call it? What do you call the... Yes, yes. That's, it's the cluster. The bunch. It's the size all right, so um, so they they go to Hebron. It's very important that Caleb is associated with Hebron. I won't go into a long excursus on it, but um, 
but it's very important that tra- that the tradition tie Caleb to Hebron because later David's going to be tied to Caleb in a way that's the Calebites in a way that's important and it gives him authority to take um, Hebron. All right, so and so they also bring pomegranates and figs. Yes. So this is a good sign. Why is it a good sign that they bring grapes, pomegranates, and figs? Why is that good? You can grow those there. It's fertile. They can use it as a symbol forever in Judaica stores uh, as a as a symbol of the country. Of course, we have always been a creative, industrious people. All right. So. Um, then, at the end of how many days, if the mission's going to be a complete one, how long does it have to last? 40 days. 40 days. Of course, right? Has to. All right, so 40 days, of course. Um, and they went straight to whom? And? Aha. Aha. They go to Moshe and Aaron. Fine. What is going to be a source of the problem? They go to the entire Israelite community. At Kadesh, in the wilderness of Paran, and they made their report to them and to the whole community as they showed them the fruit of the land. Moshe and Aaron certainly could have intervened and prevented the report from being made to the entire people. They did not do so. Why not? Did they get the report first? We're not told that they get the report first. So they all get it together. They all get it together. Why didn't Moshe and Aaron say, you know what, why don't you all come in to the tent and then we'll share the results with the people? Maybe they thought the report was good. Who thought the report was good? Moses and Aaron. Why? Because it's the <laughs> they had samples. <laughs> they had faith that God. <clears throat> they not only had faith; yes, they did. They had a report from God. They had a report from God that the land flows with milk and honey. This is a perfect, wonderful land. Why would I take you to one that's not? Why would I promise you something that, that, that you don't want to look forward to, right? Of course it's a good land, duh. So Moshe and Aaron send leadership to go to the place God has promised. Here they come with huge, have you seen the thing on the, on the wine label? Huge clusters of grapes and pomegranates and fig. Yay! We're going to get the report for the people now. Here comes the commercial, right? This, get everybody around. Get everybody together because here comes... Let's hear what the princes have to say about the land we're going to. So Moshe and Aaron, it would seem, have every reason to believe that they're going to give a positive report. So they don't protect the people from that information. Why would they? The point of sending the leaders in the first place was because, as all y'all said, they have credibility. The people are going to listen to them. They're important. Mickey said they're going to be honest. Okay. Well, didn't God also say, and oh, by the way, I'm going to help you grab it. And I'm going to help you take it. So, fine, you want to scout out exactly what y'all need to do. Hmm? So Moses and Aaron believe that too. So Moses and Aaron believe that too. They have every reason to. Right. Okay. Because God said so. I mean, not that Moshe hasn't been known to question God a few (laughs) times, but, you know, that's a different... That's a different scene. All right, so, la, 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 la. so this is what they told him. So now they're going to give their report. We came to the land you sent us to. It does indeed flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Yay! However, aha, uh-huh. Reuben. First word of verse 28, FS. What is FS in Hebrew? Zero. Nothing. Here used as a contraction, as a disjunctive word, right? It's terrific. Disjunctive means, however, but. Okay, now 
You can imagine Moshe and Aaron looking at each other, going, right? What do you mean, but? Right? It's going downhill. It's going downhill. <laughs> They're out of control. <laughs> However, the people who inhabit the country are powerful, right? And the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the Anakites there. Okay, now we don't have a visceral reaction to the word Anakites, but if all they said was, and what's even worse is we saw Anakites there. I mean, you know, right? You don't have to know anything about ancient Near Eastern history to know that's going to strike terror in the fear and fear in the hearts of the people, right? Or, or why would they say it? All right. So the Anakites are there. So, okay. The Amalekites dwell in the Negev region. Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites inhabit the hill country. And Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So we're getting all of these peoples who are clearly people that in the Israelite memory are people who we've gone up against, right? And there's, they have military experience, right? They are not to be trifled with. Caleb hushed the people before Moses and said, let us by all means go up and we shall gain possession of it for we shall surely overcome it. Now, everybody had the opportunity to respond to that, presumably. Caleb is brave in that he challenges the majority opinion. He does so publicly. I don't know about y'all, but whenever the leaders have an assessment about something at a meeting, right? What does it take to raise your hand and go, uh, well, actually, right? You know, it's very hard to challenge the overwhelming majority opinion, particularly of powerful, influential people. But Caleb does it, right? He's a man clearly of integrity. He's a man of faith. He's a man who trusts that they can do this. Um, but, okay, it's never good, right? But. <laughs> Isn't the assumption here that the people that he hushed was the whole Israelite community? Yes. That somehow they had reacted to this news? Yes. Said, oh, my God, oh, my God. If you're then, scripting this, yeah. and we saw Anakites there, you know, wh- what would you script the people's reaction to me, right? You know, well, they have to, <laughs> right? You know, there has to be a reaction going on. The people are, their, their whole lives hinge on, on this report. So, so presumably, yes, he's, he's quelling some kind of already beginnings of, right, a stirring. So, they, so, but the men who had gone up with him said, we cannot attack that people, for it is stronger than we. Thus, they spread calumnies among the Israelites about the land they had scouted, saying, The country that we traversed and scouted is one that devours its settlers. All the people that we saw in it are men of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The Anakites are part of the Nephilim. And we looked like grasshoppers to ourselves, and so we must have looked to them. And the whole community breaks out in absolute panic. So demoralizing. So lots of places the rabbis want to address what's going on, the commentators through the centuries. One of them is what is the actual sin? Because we know they're going to get clobbered for this. They're going to get absolutely clobbered for this. So what is their actual sin? So one of of the traditions is exactly, Sarah, what you just said. They were leaders. Their word was going to be taken seriously. People were going to believe them, and they were demoralizing to the people. That this is their sin. They were charged with the responsibility of accurately representing what they saw, and what they did was spread calumnies right among the people and caused panic. How do we? How do we know? How do we know? What literary support do we have for a charge that they were not telling the truth as they saw it? 
Well, well oh, yeah. Well, it, I was always wondering about that. If they looked like grasshoppers to the people that they were seeing, then why weren't they actually? Um, why weren't they overcome? And and come you know come back maybe maybe only some of them would survive to come back. Um, they look like grasshoppers to themselves. Right, to themselves, and they and, and so we must have looked. They to must them. have looked to them. Right. Yeah. So well, presumably they didn't know that these were military scouts. You dress like the people. Yeah. They they would. They wouldn't look. Like the them. enemy wouldn't have known who they were. Okay. All right. But 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 we're gonna go to your point of and so we looked to them. Pam. I mean, the problem is that they were given a mission to go and scout out the land, and and that's it. And they added their interpretation, and that's where the problem is. Tell me some problems with their interpretation. You know, that we're going to be beat, basically. They're more powerful. We can't win. And on and on, that uh, how they're giants. But that, but that might be true. Well, that might be true. That they assessed that these are really huge fortified cities. These are huge people. The Anakites are there, and so we can't win. So let, let's just stay with. It might be true. It, what if it's true that they look that that their assessment is militarily this is impossible? What's the problem with that, according to the tradition? God said they were doing. It's not taking God into the equation. So rather than saying, physically, this is going to be incredibly challenging, (laughs) right? But because we have God on our side, we just need to figure out the best way. God will take care of the rest, right? So they they leave God out of the equation. This generation that has experienced 10 plagues and a miraculous sea partage, right? And the destruction of the entire Egyptian army reads God out of the equation. For some of the rabbis, this is the moment that they are doomed to die in the desert, right? We're, we're done with this generation that cannot take God into the equation. But why, where are the lies here? What? Ah, so textually, where's the problem? Where's the lie? Okay, thank you, Reuben. So... The country that we traversed and scouted is one that devours its settlers. All the people that we saw in it are men of great size. Where's where's the problem? Maybe it's true. <laughs> well, if it devours its settlers, there'll be nobody there. If it devours its settlers, they're not going to be huge people. Either... They're huge, and their cities are huge, and they're powerful, which means there's plenty of food, there's plenty of water, there's plenty of nutrition, there's plenty of exercise, right? So either that's the case, or it's a terrible, horrible, awful place that devours its settlers. Both can't be true, says the tradition, right, says many of the commentaries. This is how we know it's an exaggeration, like, it, they're, they're, they're spinning it. Because both can't be true. either. Because one or the other could be true. They could have gone and said, oh, my God. Clearly, agriculture is not happening there. It devours its settlers. The kids are starving. Everyone's sick. They're all scrawny. Or it's impossible to beat them because they're huge. But both can't be true. That means it is on purpose that they are trying to discredit the mission, says many of our commentators. Sarah? Is it possible that these, this particular cadre of leaders has been there for a long time and has gotten stale in terms of what they might have had years ago and were politically losing it? Okay, so stay. So let's stay with that. Where were they before this? When you say they've been in power or position for years, where were they? They were slaves in Egypt. All right, so they were slaves in Egypt, and now they're free in the desert. What do they have to do in the desert to live, to make a living? (laughs) Nothing. Nothing. 
So many of the commentators go exactly where you're going. That they are now free, and in being free, they are leaders. And now that they're leaders and they're in the desert, what do they have to do to make a living? Collect manna and a double portion before Shabbos, right? Like they do nothing except rule their tribe. They rule, they rule their clans, right? So why in the world would they want to give that up to go fight, risk their lives, possibly not survive the battle, and then maybe have to fight for a leadership position once they get set up over there? Again, they are lazy. They are, um, what did you say? They're entitled, you know, they, and they they want the status quo. They they are congressmen. Okay. Serious commentary. Doesn't the word devour belong to grasshoppers as opposed to leaders? The only thing we know that devours are grasshoppers. So maybe it's like a secret text there saying, look, you're not grasshoppers, but you're the ones who are going to devour the whole land. Very interesting. So for a culture that knows things like locusts, swarms of locusts, we know that's probably where the 10 plague, that plague of locusts comes from what we know happened in the ancient Near East. Locusts would swarm and they would destroy, the, they would devour the crops. So if... It's incredibly strong, but that would make it seem like so one could imagine it having been deployed that way. It seems that it wasn't, right? It seems it seems that it's referring to like infertility, you know, of the land. It, it you know, like it somehow it's a bad thing. It devours its settlers is clearly a bad thing because it's a negative part of the report. Yes, they did. So you know, so it seems that the people panic because the metaphor is a terrifying one, right? That that maybe we're small as grasshoppers and we'll ourselves be devoured by. So they're standing there with these huge grapes and pomegranates that they just brought from the land that they're saying devours itself. Correct. There's Which evidence is evidence right there. That, so that is what everybody can see. That, that is where the commentators go. That clearly it's one or the other, and they're clearly they have an agenda to discredit the mission. And so, is it what Sarah said that they want the status quo because they have it pretty good, they have it pretty cushy? Um, is it that they are terrified because they've read God out of the equation and they really do believe that the other people are so powerful that they, right, will be defeated? Right? That's possible. Rami Shapiro has an interesting point. He said, it's bad enough that they say, we, we look like grasshoppers to ourselves. The really bad part is, and so we must have looked to them. Why does Rabbi Rami Shapiro say this is the worst part? What's so bad about that? You let not only let someone else define you, <clears throat> you do it for them. How do you know what they're thinking about you? How do you know how they see you? How do, you might say we look like grasshoppers to ourselves. Okay, but. You have no idea how you look to somebody else unless they tell you that. And presumably they didn't say, um, excuse me, um, Anakites, um, could you give us an assessment, right, of, of how we seem to you, right? So they, they, what did you say? They projected it. They made, they made that up in their head. And this is always panic-inducing and self-defeating, and we do it all the time. Mickey? Like putting a stumbling block before the blind. Tell me how. <coughs> um, well, these are uh, uninformed <coughs> people who are looking for answers. The, the Israelite people? Yes. Okay. And then the answers that they're given are incorrect and negative. 
and they haven't been there. So they're blind in that sense. And now they've placed a stumbling block before the blind, right? That I can't see, I'm trusting you to, to who can see, to tell me the, the clear way forward. And what you've done is shoved a foot, an ottoman in my path. Well, it, it reveals a fundamental insecurity to see. I mean, that's really the problem. And how in the world are people who are fundamentally insecure are going to go deal with this land and do all the other things, by the way, that I expect my children to do? <laughs> right? But you don't, but what do you tell your children to empower them to be able to do that? You are strong. You are strong. You, look like a grasshopper. you do not look like a grasshopper to me. Mommy loves you. <laughs> right? You are not a grasshopper. This is, is this is so a part of human nature. Really, Paula, in tell our, us how. In our own self, in our within our own self, but it also, to me, is reminiscent of the Holocaust, which kind of goes back to and that degenerate art kind of stuff, and how Jews were depicted by the Nazis, and then. In human nature, Jews would have been sort of internalizing right. that kind of um, picture of themselves to a certain degree. So the sin here is that nobody was doing that. There was no anti-Semitic art circulating. Doing it to Correct. That, for the tradition, is more horrifying than when it's done by somebody else. Right, that for us to internalize a message that's sent out to us constantly is one thing. For us to to do it ourselves to ourselves is a whole nother level of having internalized the enemy. Right? It's sad. It's really sad. And something very big to think about. It's very big to think about. So one, so going exactly to this point. Going exactly to that point, who's the author of this book called Ancient Secrets? I for, forgive me, I don't have the name printed here. Um, but th- this is exactly right. There's a difference between what we hear and take in and believe and, and this business of projecting it out. So, so wh- one mistake, one lesson from this is we need to choose our mentors carefully. We have to... Be careful when we are the mentors of what we say because it has extraordinary power, right? So pity those whose advisors fill their ears with negative perceptions based on their own disappointments in life, such as you can't trust anybody or everyone will cheat you sooner or later. Ten of the spies selected by the Israelites have presumably been raised by such mentors, People who, as Egyptian slaves, have come to view life through a filter of negativity and oppression. And these spies take this attitude with them on their journey. Then they, the people listen to those mentors, and it's an absolute disaster. Right? What happens is an absolute disaster. Then, Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Caleb. Uh-huh. Caleb is another generation, right? Caleb is that generation. Well, there's there's different ages. Oh, okay. There's different ages mixed together. Well, that's even more credit to this. From birth to you know, yeah. old age would have been. Uh, but yes, he's he was formed in the same environment. But I think what what our author is suggesting is you know to bring it into you know mythic truth. What happens all the time is. We listen to the voices that have told us you can't, you can't do that. Who do you think you are? Right, you know, or the world is a terrible place and everyone's going to cheat you sooner or later. Right? We we internalize the messages of our mentors. Let us be very careful about who we choose as our mentors, and let us be very careful when we know we have impact and influence. Or let us be aware that we have impact and influence and be very careful about the messages it is that we send out to those who are affected by our words. 
Rabbi, all of these interpretations are based on the assumption that these delegates believe that the uh, uh, Canaanites saw them as grasshoppers. But if you believe that they were determined to tell lies, even to tell lies to get their point across, then it's, it's perfectly appropriate for them to say, and we surely look like grasshoppers to them, even though they didn't believe it. Right. So, right, that, that you do what you need to in your campaign, in your smear campaign, right? You do whatever you need to. So for, for people who believe it was a smear campaign, they're like, whatever. For people who believe they're really tied up in something like, like this, it's about going to the psychological truth of we often assess our own worth by what we think other people think. But, and going to the thing about reading God out of the equation, some scholars go so far as to suggest the real sin was that they didn't believe they merited God's help. It's not that they didn't believe that God could win. That would be silly. They saw Pharaoh's army destroyed. They know what God could do. They know what God is capable of. The real sin, say some commentators, is that they didn't believe God would help them. Because they surely are grasshopper. It's a grasshopper mentality that they didn't trust they would merit God's help. Mickey? But they lack the blind faith that's necessary uh, to go ahead and do what they had to do. They didn't have that kind of faith. Correct. Correct. Rabbi Rami Shapiro says, Words can make or break worlds. Hearing is believing, even when what we hear is untrue. This is the power behind advertising and propaganda. This is the power behind religious doctrine. This is the power behind cultural norms. A lie repeated can become true while it yet remains absolutely false. So those of us who are convinced, even though we don't want to admit it, that if we just had more money or just had that newer car, really, we would be happier. <laughs> right? We, we, buy, we believe it. We buy it. Right? Literally and figuratively. Even though it's untrue, we buy it. And then we shop. Right? Or, you know, or we don't save because we're just buying the, the new Lexus. Right? So, Right? All right, so grasshopper, about this grasshopper stuff, I love what Rami says, Rabbi Rami Shapiro. We make grasshoppers of ourselves and giants of the task. When we have done something wrong and must apologize, do we not see ourselves as grasshoppers? When we must take on a new job, do we not see the obstacles as giants? Torah is telling us to see reality as it is. Yes, I have done wrong and must make amends. And still I am a person entitled to respect and compassion. Yes, I have a great task to accomplish and it will be hard. And still I am capable of taking it upon myself if I do it one bit at a time. This is all that is asked of us to take up the task of living ethically one bit one hour, one action at a time. That this is the fundamental challenge, says Rami, is that we make giants out of whatever it is and grasshoppers of ourselves. From complete paralysis to walking, exercising several times a day. Mr. Russo, do you, do you just lay there and say, okay, you know, Clearly, it's never going to happen for me. Or do you do right now the small thing that's required for it to be the next step towards something? Too often, we make the goal, we make the problem, we make the challenge into giants and understand ourselves as grasshoppers. And this is the way we are self-defeating all the time. The... Words of Rabbi Jonathan Krauss. 
I suspect that most of us recognize this grief-induced, stubborn, and self-destructive moment in our people's story. It is a harsh and painful reminder of how fragile and limited our lives can be. A moment of great promise and opportunity presents itself, but for some reason, we are just not ready. We fall short. We lack vision or courage or self-discipline or experience. It is a tragic moment for us. And later, realizing we let the moment go by, we grieve at our lost chance and rebel against the reality that it may not return. Even when we, like the Israelites, admit our mistake, even when we genuinely do the work of teshuvah, of atonement, sometimes the opportunity is lost to us and will not come again. But I can't help hearing the stern warning to learn to, quote, number our days so that we act wisely and courageously in these moments of opportunity and promise. I can't help thinking about how crucial it is that we make work at preparing ourselves spiritually for the inevitable tests with which these moments present us. May we act with wisdom and courage when they come. It is normal. It is human. It is understandable. All of that. And that we need to be about doing good work good spiritual, psychological, physical work to strengthen ourselves to be able to meet those moments where we tend to make grasshoppers of ourselves and giants of the challenge, that we really, really do the work of positioning ourselves internally so that we can deflect right the voices of fear and panic and doubt and distortion and who do you think you are? Um, that that we we are responsible, I guess, is what I'm saying. That I, I'm taking from this week's partial. We are responsible for being proactive in preparing for the next moment we're presented with this, which we can never exactly plan for. Right? Sometimes we can. Sometimes it's very conscious and very thought through. But moments are going to arise even within that. Even if I moved here intentionally for this job, right? There's still moments that I can't anticipate when it's going to come that I feel like a grasshopper, <laughs> and that it's a it's an it's an it's a commitment to good practice to be here once a week, right? To be together once a week, to be doing those things that keep us in a place of readiness to respond to this moment uh, in a way that's not a dismal. Failure. What happens to this generation? What is the consequence of this? They die in the desert. They die in the desert. So if you believe, if you really believe that the challenge is impossible, what happens? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You give up. You make it impossible. What, What was it, Benjamin Franklin or somebody who said, if you believe you can do it or you believe you can't, you're right. If you believe you can't do it, if you believe it's impossible, that's exactly what happens every time. You cannot possibly succeed with the mentality of it's impossible. Nobody can. And this generation absolutely brings it about. The people believe it, and they panic, and they refuse to fight, and it's over. Suppose that the uh, report was accurate. Would not, wouldn't that put the people in a position of being uh, wise in not uh, accepting it? Yeah, so what's the problem with accurate? G- given that we're in a narrative that is, that is God-based, do you see that the, ch- the problem is accurate? That, that's... What I'm suggesting is that to project this story into um, um, how we should act in a situation that calls for a gamble um, isn't always useful. Right, so, that, so what you're saying is 
we should assess risk honestly. And it would be silly and stupid and self-destructive to walk into a dangerous situation thinking we can overcome the impossible. Okay. Well, right? Because then... Much better said than <laughs> so, so I think, yes, you're 100% right. And I think the context for the story is one in which it was not accurate because God has promised them you will be successful. It's they who chose not to believe that. And that's the only reason I stress the God-based part is because otherwise you're completely right. The people would be stupid to go in having just heard that report. That would be suicide. That the... The point of the narrative is that God has promised, God has delivered, God destroyed the Egyptians, God took care of splitting the sea, God did all that and said, I'm giving you this land, and still, they, they wouldn't go. Rabbi, it seems as a question, why did Moses and Aaron choose the people that went in to scout the land if they knew or should have known that these people are negative in thoughts, that they diminish themselves? Which exacerbates the crime right, yeah. of the yeah. scouts right. in the tradition's mind because Moses and Aaron sent leadership who they thought were going to come back and so and sell know, the mission. You know, when Moses and Aaron are sitting around this table saying, let's choose Joseph, he's a smart guy, he's objective, you know... And they wound up with guys that just are negative. And if they didn't understand the people, they didn't know who they were dealing with, they weren't really leaders after all. It's an excellent question. What happened? How? How did that happen? What happened? <clears throat> Moses and Aaron presumably know their folks. They know their people. They send leaders that they think are going to be telling the truth, that are going to come back with an objective report. What happened? So one interpretation is what Sarah said. That these are guys who are leaders. They are smart. They are, they, they do have an accurate assessment and they assess their own positions as being way better where they are than what it's going to be when they have to go build a life over there. They, the people turn on Moses and Aaron and threaten to stone them. So Moses and Aaron are falling on their faces because the people have turned on them. Why did you take us out of Egypt to die out here? We want to go back. And they turn on Moses. It's, it's ugly. Like the, the, it's a mob that has turned. And you know what happens when a mob turns. It's herd mentality, and it is very, very dangerous. Well, it's a reflection of how hard it is to leave Egypt behind very nice. So this is another interpretation. Is that there There were no leaders of that generation. Moses, Aaron, and God, by the way, learned that here. They learned that this is the best we've got. And even they couldn't leave Egypt behind. We're done. That was the best we had. And this is what happened. This gener- God says, I'm done. This generation is going to die in the desert. They cannot go into the promised land because they cannot leave Egypt behind. Except for two. Except for two. And they they go in. They make it. And he's and one of them's going to lead the people next cuz even Moses can't. Even Moses cannot be the one to lead them into the promised land. As wonderful as Moses is, it's not his it, they, it needs to be Joshua. It's the next generation. It's a new set of skills for a new reality. Thank you. So I'm going to give you, of course, something to take home. I read you a little bit uh, from this, a book called Ancient Secrets, um, which, brings, which brings this story into the modern age so you can read the Shabbos at home. I love this piece about on page 171 of the handout. How many of us, burdened by traumatic childhood experiences, choose to bemoan our fate, blaming our parents and God 
rather than taking advantage of the window of opportunity to cross over to the new approach to life offered by the promised land. How many people refuse to take a risk and embrace life, preferring, it seems, to lead lives of quiet desperation? In my profession, I meet such people every day. For them, it is more comfortable to be a slave than to step boldly into the unknown. This Shabbat, may we challenge our own tendencies to be creatures of habit, preferring our own stuckness even, uh, that's familiar to the unknown, which can be certainly uh, terrifying, but also, as we know, electrifying and growthful uh, and, and really what connects us most to, to being fully and completely alive. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.